0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM coach, and this is a special Kona episode. I was going to say Kona download, but I technically didn't do it, so it can't really be a download. But it's a episode that I like to do just about every year from um, Kona and talking about what, how the race unfolded, what transpired this year, what the strategies might have been, how people prep and so forth. Last year we talked a little bit about race prep and what the week prior looks like. This year I break into what the strategies are, how they differ between age groupers and pros, and how that how the race unfolds for them mentally, physically, and from a strategy standpoint. Um, from that perspective, it's a long podcast, so. Please be ready for about two hours, not quite, an hour and 45 of it being the breakdown of Kona. I go into a lot of detail of what the pros go through and what the age groupers go through and how they race it. And so if you're interested in that, you can jump ahead after this intro about 15 minutes where I start breaking down Kona. Um, Before that, I talk a little bit about what it means to be coached and what to look for. Because I have received that question quite frequently with regards to um, how can I be a better athlete for my coach and what is my coach looking for? And um, I go also into how it might not work and um, why some athletes might not fit with regards to the coach they've chosen or who I coach. And then I also briefly go into what steady means on trail runs. Um, I get a lot of questions on that in general, whether for my athletes or when I'm describing it out on the the road, not on the road while I'm running, but when I'm talking to people and so forth, or they want some insight with regards to their training. So steady is an interesting description for me because I talk about energy when it comes to steady. And then I go into a long, detailed breakdown of Kona 2018. So if you want to skip the first two parts and just go to that part, it's about 15, 16 minutes from here. Um, if you want to hear it all, it's a long podcast and I apologize, but it seems to me like uh, those that want the information are enjoying it. And I've gotten some feedback that there's plenty of good tidbits in there and nuggets that... I shouldn't refrain from going deep, so plus you'll have a week or so to download this and um, listen to it in bits, but and most of this does fit into the usual weekly word podcast um, theme, right? We're talking about ultra endurance endeavors, strategy, nutrition, hydration, mindset, physical prep, and most importantly, as you all have noticed over the last few months, it's about how to make it all work, how to balance it all, Um, all being the three stools, three legs of our stool, right? Family and personal life, work and professional life, and how to squeeze in, how to include this healthy fitness lifestyle with regards to endurance and ultra-endurance training, racing, adventures, experiences, and so forth. And so it becomes even more difficult to navigate as we take on the longer adventures. It's different than most sports and most, most athletics from a masters standpoint where we all have, um, careers and families because ultra endurance and endurance is so time consuming and being able to navigate through that communicating working effectively disciplined I would say there's not a week that doesn't go by where I don't have two or three phone conversations at least with athletes on working with them or describing to them how they need to navigate through their weeks in order to take on these endeavors in order to have this lifestyle that is meaningful to them that they want to do but you don't want to burn bridges and be in it only briefly because after a while it becomes overwhelming to your family and to your career and anything else in your life and so part of my task as a coach and basically of this weekly word podcast a lot of it revolves around helping you navigate being an ultra endurance athlete despite all that despite having a busy career despite having family requirements and needs and interests i mean it's not like you're forced to do it you care about that you care about your career but you also care about your own self and your own self-care and health and growth and fitness and lifestyle so this all still fits under that umbrella under that mantra and i hope again as always All I'm looking to do is contribute to help it make help you have it navigated a little bit easier to help you um, find sort of maybe some ways to um, balance it all a little bit better or some thought provoking nuggets that will allow you to apply that during your next training week training phase and so forth. So enjoy this week of the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm not going to call it an episode other than the Kona episode. I'm not going to count it into my 87 episodes so far because I didn't count last year's and two years ago's Kona episodes. So this will just be the annual Kona episode. So enjoy. I frequently have athletes ask me, what it means to not fit well with me as a coach or what they need to look for in their coach when it's not working well and so forth. And this is a hard question to answer because many um, athletes have their own personal style with what they're looking for or what their needs are or how they like to be coached. So that's a different angle to be the athlete receiving coaching It's hard for me to give any type of insight or advice. But I do know what I look for in athletes. And when I decide that I no longer want to work with a certain athlete, it's not because of I have anything against them or it's my way or the highway. It's more about that I look for uh, that the, there is no feedback, there is no communication, there is no, that we're, there, that we're just not meshing well, um, we're just not communicating well. Or what I say or what I try to convince athletes of is just not resonating or it's not um, uh, coming across as helpful, but instead as accusatory or um, that, it's, uh, that I'm not being flexible. And so yeah that's what it usually looks like from a athlete uh, from a coach perspective that our communication that my coaching style that my prodding and pushing and provoking in order to do things differently um, to try things differently to open up to be vulnerable is not being met and what would I do if I were the athlete now being with that I have all this coaching years of experience well as an athlete I would want to make sure that my coach knows as much about me and what I need to have for success um, as possible Um, And I I definitely lean on coaching when I'm looking to get ready for a big event. Now, I write my own training, but I do work with a variety, um, two or three different coaches that help me, that I run ideas by, and one in specific who works closely with me with regards to cycling and that I am sure to uh, communicate well with. He knows my schedule, my life, my demands, my days that I need off. So the, the structure, right? The, um, the skeleton of the plan, I would like to say. And then I fill in that skeleton with flesh. And flesh for my coach is how I'm feeling. Wow, those intervals were really difficult today. For some reason, I could just not get going. Um, by the time the third interval came around, I felt great. I was awake, right? That to a good coach means, you know, there's some residual fatigue in there. There's some lethargy. Um, you have to convince yourself to get popping, to get going. And so he'll see that. He'll know that. Um, or today, for example, I just got back from swimming and man, the first 2000 yards of my swim, I felt awful all over the place and I'm sure I just got back from Hawaii and so therefore um, I'm still a little off with sleep and and rhythm and circadian rhythm and so forth but man I felt like I haven't swum in two three weeks so those are things that I would want to share with my coach Um, frustrations um, lack of speed lack of power low energy hunger bouts Um, moodiness, shortness, um, high heart rate, uh, uh, a fluttering heart rate, right? Where we start, we're running and we feel as if we're bonking or we're low energy or too high energy. All those things are things I wanna share with my coach. And for some reason, I seem to think, and I'm not for some reason, (laughs) I notice that many, many athletes, especially in this endurance and ultra endurance community, They love to upload their workouts. They love to monitor their progress. They love to see their workouts completed. And then, you know, if you're going in there, and that's why I hate, excuse my word, the word hate, but I really despise... um, The auto updates by garmin these days it's a great tool great that's good for technology purposes but it's terrible for coaching purposes because it just uploads the workouts without any commentary without any flesh on that skeleton without any color or insight it's just black and white sure you did the workout but what does that mean what does that mean? It could mean that it was the most difficult workout for you or it was the easiest workout for you. It could mean that you really enjoyed the, the intervals or the specific technique work or the work that we did in that workout because you really feel that you need it and it really stimulated you or it was boring or you are struggling to get through the workouts, your lack of motivation. All that. All that is part of this bigger picture of allowing yourself to be coached. And so just today, I sent somebody an email saying, no longer will, will I coach them because it's just not working out. And it's nothing against the person. It's just that they refuse to fill out logs or communicate with me in some other form. And they just want me to put in workouts. And that's just not how I work. That's not how I operate. There's plenty of athletes out there that would like to get coaching, that would like to have that exchange of ideas and thoughts. Now, many athletes might say, "Well, Chris, I many of my athletes, well, Chris, I fill out my logs every day, and I don't hear from you every day." No, of course not. If I responded to every single log everybody fills out, well, all my my entire day would be spent every day answering emails and logs, um, but. I'm reading them, I'm looking at them, I'm paying attention to them and seeing if there's any adjustments I need to do in their training. I would say the first two, three hours of every day of the week for me besides Saturday and Sunday or something else on vacation is is spent reading logs. And I set aside time for that in order to on my one computer have the logs where I sort of work through them. And on my other computer, I have training peaks and workout log up. And I can quickly look at the athlete's plan if, as I am reading the logs, I see something that sticks out. Well, wait a moment. What's wrong there? Why is that person so tired? Or why is that person so cranky? Or why is that person so hungry? Or, wow, they're really feeling good. They're feeling amazing. Um, now of course after having done this for 20 years <laughs> I know pretty much what everybody's doing big picture so I don't have to check everybody's log with regards to what they've done in the past 10 days or two weeks so that I can just pay pretty good attention to overall oh, yeah that's right Sally is coming off of a 10 day stretch of high quality then she took four days off so she should be feeling great now oh there we see it in the log she's feeling absolutely awesome so but anyway that's the process and without that exchange without that color without those insights i just don't want to coach you um and that again it it sounds as though i'm saying um i'm being too selective and everybody has a different style of communicating i totally get that but um i can i even do my weekly check-ins with athletes where it's like Hey, I see it's nothing been updated in the log in the last 10 days. How are you doing? What's going on? How are you feeling? You know, there's athletes, believe it or not, they don't even respond to that. (laughs) So, yeah, they're paying for coaching, but they're paying for a plan that I'm completely flying blind or in a fog and just, all right, I know how to fly this thing, but I don't know if I'm doing it very well, right? So... That's what you want to have for your coach. And then the accountability is more on your coach too. I've talked about this on the podcast before. Allow yourself to be coached. Allow yourself to share and give insights and how you're feeling. And then that way, the coach needs to apply those insights to your training. You should see that correlation. If you're not providing those tools, then it's not on your coach right? Um, so yeah, I got an email. <laughs> this is pretty funny. I got an email the other day from an athlete that I stopped coaching four months ago saying, I'd like to put my coaching on hold because I just don't have time. I've got a lot going on and um, to work, and, um, but I'd like to resume coaching again in January. And I'm thinking to myself, I stopped coaching him four months ago. Yeah, that's how little that person paid attention to their training logs, that there wasn't even anything in there. There was nothing. But yet they still sent me the email. So that's also what I get. You know, I have athletes that are just like that. I don't know why, and it happens. But I also have many wonderful athletes that provide me with a ton of insight and a ton of color and a ton of care with their logs. And I see that care. I have athletes that really put a lot of care, not detail, care into their logs. And I know uh, based off of my personality and coaching style, those people draw more of my attention. They pull me in more into their results and their coaching outcome because they care. And it it automatically pulls me into me caring more than and this whole back and forth and um interplay and so forth so yeah that's the coaching relationship you should be looking for as the athlete and that's the coaching relationship i look for as a coach so i hope that provides a little bit of uh not insight but more just clarity around what you can be doing to be a better athlete for your coach whoever that is something that trail runners ask me frequently is what does it mean to be steady steady energy and i talk about this quite often with regards to the athletes that i coach also when i go out on long trail runs and i've talked about it briefly on the podcast but not quite in depth steady energy means especially for longer trail running or cycling or swimming or any type of endurance output that you feel your energy levels being as good early on as they would as they should be late. And that displays itself with regards to your cognitive abilities, that you're alert and fresh in mind, that you're making sound decisions, you're paying attention, your body scans, you're not absent-minded, you're not moody, you're not fatigued, you're not groggy, you're not lazy, you're not sleepy, you're not out of it, you're alert and you're still in a good mood, you're jovial, you're responsive, you're positive, your energy levels are high, just like when you started the run, maybe not the first few steps, but maybe after like 10-15 minutes and sort of the blood is flowing. And that means you kept energy levels steady throughout the hours of your output. Now that requires fueling and hydration, that requires good pacing, good sensations early on that you're conservative in order to have the energy late, but it also requires you paying good attention to how you're putting forth, how you're expending your energy, and that's what I mean by steady energy. Now, of course, your legs are going to be tired from the pounding of the trails for a few hours. And of course, your legs are going to be tired from biking over terrain and up and down or flat for a few hours and swimming and so forth for a few hours and rowing and hiking and all that. But that has nothing to do with that core energy in your body and your mental energy. Right. And if you balance those two together and you're still pretty alert and excited and positive and have good thinking prowess late in your um, endurance uh, training day, then that means you applied good energy you were steady throughout your day with fueling, hydration, and pacing. The three of those are key to sort of allow your heart rate, this is, not, this is independent of heart rate, to, even if you looked at it after, you'd notice that it would stay in a pretty steady area level because you never got too high, you never got too low, you fueled and hydrated well and therefore paced it well and kept it in quite a narrow range steady energy and as you get long ready for longer and longer endurance events and into the ultra ultra endurance world i said that two ultras mainly because things just get crazy long after a while you become more and more familiar on how you want to feel further into your day if you're doing a hundred mile run you still want to be cognitively alert and positive and good thought processes good um Uh, body scans and good energy and um, um, positive feelings late in your day. You've been running for 12, 13, 14 hours going into the night. But when you see your crew, you're still, yep, you're still dead on it. You're still paying attention. You're still on it, alive, active, happy, excited, cognitively fresh. That's good energy. That's the description of what I'm talking about. So as you go out onto a, a weekend training day here in the preseason, off season as we're going into it, practice that. See how that might be, whether you're on a long hike or walk, whether you're on a long bike ride or long swim. Notice what your energy levels are late and not heart rate, not power, not pace, energy levels. How did I start? How was I? What did I note the first hour? How was I making good decisions? I was fresh, and I had positive emotions towards everything. And how was I late? Was I still quick and fresh of mind? Was I still able to make good decisions? And was I still positive? And did I still notice the the beautiful things around me in nature and all the 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 people running with me or cycling with me did we still have good conversation did i or did i go silent right all those things are part of your energy profile for your day for your training day and it's a great other indicator one of the many that we want to use in our in ultra endurance world because when you get into that aid station when you get when you see your crew and they see you in a um fresh, a uh, quick thinking, positive way, it's great. They're, they know you're having a good day. They know you're pacing well. They know you're being smart. They know you have plenty more hours of good output ahead of you. And it also makes them happy and it makes you happy because you they don't worry about you and you don't have to worry about them worrying about you, which any of you know, having done any type of ultra, is an energy you spend, right? Wondering how your crew's doing and if they're worried about you. So, all right. That explains that topic. Wow. Well, I just recorded about an hour of my Kona breakdown with insights and opinions and observations and breakdown of the pro field versus the age group field. And I forgot to hit record. So... Here I go again, attempt number two. The nice thing about um, having recorded it already or having spoken it already but not recording it is that at least I have my thoughts organized and I know what I was going to say. And yeah, so hopefully this version will flow a little bit better. But then again, you have nothing to compare it to. So that makes it (laughs) an easy uh, flow here. So yeah, Kona 2018, what an um, interesting race. It was an interesting perspective for me for the first time in many years, um, not really having uh, A, too many athletes in it, three, but also um, staying away from town and sort of the industry and so forth for the week um, and turning it more into a vacation. This week I got was supposed to be there for a full week and um, train for Ultraman. And use it since I'm already going to be on the island for Kona with regards to coaching that I extended into it on the front end for a few days in order. Well, six days originally in order to train and prep um, on the course for Ultraman. Well, Ultraman didn't happen, but um, Emily and I and our good friends Taylor and Martha We decided anyway to have a fun week there with regards to training a little bit every day, in this case, cycling, not a lot of swimming or running, um, just because the logistics of town and heading to the trails that I usually would like to run up in Waimea made it difficult. Plus we wanted to explore the island um, differently, knowing that there's no triathlon happening for us. Um, Last year, friends of ours were racing Um, Two years ago, Taylor was racing. Three three years ago, I was racing. Last year was sort of the first year that um, I was on the island with no um, uh, close buddies racing, plenty of athletes racing, but um, the people I was staying with, in this case, Taylor last year, it was the first time nobody in our household, I should say, was racing. Two years ago, he was racing. Three years ago, I was racing, and I pretty much have always stayed Not always, but the last few years with Taylor. Many of you know Taylor from the Coast Ride. But anyway, um, so yeah, that was the week over there. We discovered uh, cycling out by Hilo and um, that side of the island, which is great cycling, very pleasantly uh, surprised. Then we rode Volcano and Captain Cook and Painted Church. Um, And then we also rode up by Javi and the High Road and Waimea. So we spent a week on the island cycling without touching the Queen K once other than up that little piece from the Mauna Kea Resort to Kauai or Waimea. So it was a unique week of cycling, but it was um, really fun to explore the island. And again, fitting into the profile that... um, I talk so much about on the podcast, and that is to have the fitness to take on adventures. Now, there's no performance in this adventure. There's no um, uh, result in this adventure. <clears throat> but the fitness to go four or five hours of cycling in any terrain, anywhere, and not be worried that if you get lost or if it's a harder ride than planned or, you know, uh, uh that you can push your fitness and have the ability to explore, to truly explore. We passed amazing um, uh, little local stores for lunches and some drinks. We uh, we got to a beautiful plantation for um, pineapples. We stopped at um, a little pop-up roadside uh, um, tent store for some ice cold coconut, um, literally a coconut with a straw in it um, to cool off. We saw waterfalls and beautiful places all over the island that people take buses to. And um, instead we explored on our bicycles. So again, it just fit the profile of being fit to truly use your own body and explore nature in an environment that you usually wouldn't. And feeling the villages and the little Towns through the far end of Hawaii on the Big Island that I've not usually, not, not usually, not ever been to. Um, In the past, I have trained on the Big Island with some friends back in the day in the early 2000s, but you know, I was one of. 10 guys there training and we're all training pretty hard and you are sort of head down in your aero bars so it was the adventures that I didn't have and here stopping at a local smoothie shack or at a coconut stand or in a little village on the far side of the island or um, being a tourist a little bit was really exciting so but yeah that was my visit to Hawaii from a visit standpoint and then on Friday um, on Saturday was race day And so Kona 2018, so conditions were very favorable on the bike. I can see from the bike files by a variety of athletes, as well as um, uh, some of the profiles. I mean, the temperatures never really got into the 80s on the bike. I mean, that's crazy. Never before has this race been that cool for that long on race day. I mean, I've done Kona 14 times. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I've done Kona 14 times. And, you know, sure, it has rained upon us a few times, um, sprinkled and some, a little bit of rain, um, but not the entire day so that it would, the rain would wear off and this hot, steamy, just powerful sun mess (laughs) would emerge and it just got hotter and steamier and felt harder than before. So, um, yeah. It looks like it was really an enjoyable day. I spoke to a few guys the day after and that after that evening, and you know, cool, with a misty rain on them at times. um, Not much wind, so truly a unique and fast day, and hence so many bike records and, and course records. But the other thing that you cannot forget about Kona is, despite it being an easier bike day, it's still a hard run and it's still a very exposed run. So not just the day, but the the athletes themselves have gotten faster and better and stronger and smarter in their training and prep for it. So yes, it was a unique day with regards to conditions, but that's not to take away and not overlook and highlight the amazing performances of the athletes that are doing this now. It is not a fringe sport. It is an organized sport where athletes have been doing it since their teens, since their um, early teens, and have built engines and sport specific backgrounds with a vision of doing this sport at the highest level. So think back on that. And that is not just joining triathlon later in life, even if in your twenties or thirties and, or you come from a swimming background or from a running background or for some from a cycling background, think of it more that when you're 12, 13 and your, your plans are to become a professional triathlete. Well, how, how would you build that? And so that's what the athletes are these days. They're able to build it from that perspective. Um, so, when they're 12, they're starting to swim a lot and gentle running. And then, maybe after they are good age group swimmers, you're still keeping in mind, well, no, I don't want to be anything special in the swimming world. I'm transitioning to cycling and running and building the engines there from scratch with the perspective of future triathlon Olympic distance triathlon, half Ironman distance triathlon, and then Ironman triathlon. And so, coming into this sport, right? You've got to figure that a 25-year-old, 30-year-old triathlete now has, you know, since they they can think back, 30-year-old, 25 years um, old, that means the sport of triathlon, Ironman was already 15, 16, 17 years old then, right? So um, it had been established. It was now in the mid-90s, and there are some great knowledgeable um, structures in place with regards to becoming a triathlete in the mid-90s. You're watching Greg Welch win. You're watching the the Wendy Ingrams and so forth win. You're wa- not win Hawaii, but um, you're watching the Lori Bowdens and the Peter Reeds. You're, the coverage is on every year. There's, there's Ironmans in your country. So there is that system already in place now imagine what that's going to be like in another 10-15 years where this sport now is an olympic sport for two or three olympics and it it produces a whole different program and an upbringing around that so yeah so that's a long way to also explain let's not take away from the performances and the gradual improvement oops my phone is falling all over um the gradual improvement that the athletes are going through in this sport so overall it is truly truly was an uh an interesting year from that perspective but so when you break down the iron man triathlon especially the one in hawaii it's a completely different race than any other race in the world and not only because of the lore and the history of it and in this year less the conditions usually it is the conditions um but also the depth and the quality of the field, right? Whether in the age group ranks or in the pro ranks. Um, And let's be clear, those are two very different races, completely different races. The age group race is strategically different, it's planned different, um, it's trained for different. It's a completely different race, race, not different sport, different race. Um, Sure, it's still the same event, same distance, same you know, disciplines, all that, but from a strategy and an execution and how to win it race, it is completely different. But the depth of the field is what makes it so fun. Um, you know, you're not talking about two, three, four people in every age group being superior. They're all fast. They're all able. They're all um, strong in in a variety of disciplines or in one discipline at least. Um to really A, have made it there, but also to play in the front of the age group. So, you know, whereas at other Ironmans, you see maybe two, three, four, five guys or two, two gals um, really contending and pushing the front of the age group. Here it's 10, 12, 15, 20 people at the front of the age group, not separated by a lot and, and a lot of movement around that. Um, uh, that highlights itself for many athletes in the in the swim, right? Um, I tell a lot of the age group athletes the first time they're in Kona the, the ability to break away that A, that's gone. But B is also understanding that the 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 field stays together more. There's more people swimming 58, 102, 105, 110. It stays a mass of people. It never thins out clears up it does on the far end a little bit and then on the return but way less than what you're familiar with again because the talent level and the depth of the field and their abilities is always present um so yeah it's uh it was a it was an interesting race again to observe from that standpoint but the the clarity and the difference of the pro field versus the age group field really highlighted itself this year. Um, because again, getting caught up in um, the incorrect race strategy makes um, showed itself in both the age group and the pro field. So I'll break them down separately um, because the age group race is different than the pro race. Um, so, um, and then the women's pro race, is different than the men's pro race. But but there it's due to the depth of the field. You have the, the, the top three or four that really um, push the front end of the race and then the, the drop-off or the movement of people through the field to sort of position themselves potentially to do well on the run is um, a lot bigger. Um, sure, there's groups of two or three women sometimes running in places, four, five, and six, um, or six, seven, and eight, or three, four, and five. But on the front end, the one through five for most of the race is pretty gapped and pretty empty amongst the top age group men and the the slower uh, pro men. So it's a different dynamic. Um, yeah, and I'll go into that. But yeah, so that was the Kona race this year from a, from a structure standpoint and from a condition standpoint. And, you know, on a side note, it was also really amazing to see one of the uh, a close, close friend of mine um, break that swim course record, Jan Zibberson, um, the founder and owner of Sailfish and Sailfish wetsuits and speed suits and so forth. And um, he has been trying for that swim course record uh, quite a few times. Um, he gave up for a, f- a few years. He was focused on his business and, um, you know didn't think he would get back into that type of swim shape. And then, uh, the last two years he's done Kona. I have a feeling last year he was feeling out his ability to return to that type of swim fitness and, um, finishing the rest of the race in order to validate the course record and also do it in a respectable manner, not like 14 or 15 hours. And, um, and then I and he clearly came back with a very very focused attention this year to get that swim course record, and um, after trying trying five or six times, I believe, um, I know he was very close three or four times, and even some of the times I did the swim with him, um, there was some strategy and some coordination involved there. So it was uh, it was great to see him break that record forty six thirty for that Ironman swim and. You know, he uh, was smart about it, quite honestly, in hindsight, is that um, the the years we did it, we didn't have the gap between the pros and the the time gap between the pros and the amateurs. Back then, the amateurs, um, me, (laughs) I raced Kona uh, twice as a pro, but most of the time as an amateur. But Jan and I were amateurs together and um, age groupers. And uh, that's when we started a good... uh, 20 yards, about 10, 15 meters behind the pro field. So they would be a little bit ahead of us and they have their groups of kayakers and um, um, paddle boarders. And then there was a gap, and then by the pier, at the end of the pier, was where the age group field was. And so if you're a strong swimmer, you're quickly breaking that gap and have to swim through the pro field in order to swim to the front of the. Um, the, the smoother water into the front quality, um, fast, fast pro swimmers. And so that did delay the time and the real estate a little bit, and it made it challenging. Well, nowadays, with the 25-minute gap between the women's pro start, 6, 6.35, and the age group start, 7 o'clock, that doesn't remain an issue even the slower pro women by the time you catch them is so spread out. That's such a random slower swimmer, because if you're swimming a 50, right, they're swimming a one fifteen. which there are pros that do this, but, um, you know, it's one or two that you can easily swim by. It's not a group of 25 that you have to swim around or swim through, um, which, you know, those, those seconds add up when you're trying to break a record. Um, so there's that and then the conditions were really good for that this year and then throw into it even um that 25 minute gap got bigger because the men's pro uh, age group field started this year at 705 so it was 30 minutes right so jan's 46 minute swim meant that uh the slowest pro woman that he would be catching would be swimming a 116 and so yeah. And by the time you actually catch her, then with that time will be at the finish. So, yeah, the random 125 pro, you, you he would swim by like she's standing still pretty quickly. And uh, she's, uh, you know, a lone duckling out there um, and therefore not much of a problem with breaking stroke or sighting or real estate to swim around. So awesome job. And I'm so proud um, that he continued to persevere to get that record. Um, It's been there since 1999, maybe 98. um, That Lars Jorgensen, who I also (laughs) once competed with um, actually at one of my first triathlons ever. I swam against him at St. Anthony's triathlon in Florida, uh, Olympic distance. But That was that part on Kona. So the pro race, the pro race, what does that mean, the pro race? Well, first of all, please understand that the pro race is completely a different theme. And I'm talking about the men's pro race now. There's 50 men's pro racer. And the depth of that field is so strong. Again, just like any other, um, like in the age groups, you know, other Ironmans around the world, you maybe have three or four or five pros veering truly not veering um gunning for the podium right Um, okay let's three or four or five at the smaller races maybe seven to ten at the bigger races Um, so it's a very small field that truly contends for the podium well here you have a good 25 to 30 that on a random given day could make it in the top 10. who can make the top three or four You know, that's maybe 15, but still that's a lot, right? And so that field is very deep, very fast, and they have one goal to annihilate each other. And the theme of annihilation there is all about energy uh, um, use and mental breakdown. Um, It's all about hammering, 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 hammering. Get to Havi. And really break down the field because at the end of the day, the big strategy for the pro field is to whittle down the contenders to as small of a field as possible. And if you can bike away and swim away um, early and create a smaller group up front of true contenders that really can break down the field and force others to ride harder or change their strategy or just display a different day then that's the outcome that's the goal and you can see it in the ride files i mean i've seen dozens of pro ride files but i've also even this year what training peaks put out there of josh amberger and lionel sanders i mean their rides are completely two separate rides to havi and back now you can take a look at it on Lionel Sanders' ride to Javi, he held 332 watts average normalized power to Javi. 332, which by the way, he also held 328 average watts, which means between average watts and normalized power was only four watts, which is a great, great number. The difference of four watts between average and normalized means very little coasting, very steady pedal pressure. Um, No big spikes in power, just everything kept super smooth and super steady and just a tight band of power throughout. That's why that normalized and average is so close. Um, Normalized is an algorithm that um, takes out the zeros and coasting and recognizes the, uh, the patterns in your cycling so that it takes out the huge spikes like standing and accelerating or sudden on a steep hill standing for two or three pedal strokes where it kicks your wattage up let's say to five six seven eight hundred watts it takes that out knowing that that's not part of um, the sample size it's it's a again it's an algorithm that takes those numbers out of it so your number is usually a little bit higher It's the true gauge of your output, but um, yeah, it it mainly takes the coasting and zeros out. Um, It knows when you're not pedaling and therefore will not factor those zeros in, and therefore, again, your wattage is higher. So that number in a race is quite close for most athletes, um, even in the age group field. Um, a good rider will keep those numbers quite close because in a race you're you're not coasting very often you're just steady um in training you'll notice your own average and normalized have a bigger gap in between them 10 15 20 watts um and that just shows that there's a lot more coasting it's a totally different ride uh, uh, riding easier even um keeping uh, some pedal pressure going on the downhills, but no sense of urgency with it. So that creates a bigger gap. And so for him to have four is pretty impressive. But so anyway, 332 normalized, 328 on the way out. Now on the return from Javi, and this is where it just validates that strategy, he rode, uh, let's take a look here, Javi back. He rode normalized 271 average. Two sixty-four. 64. So there the gap is bigger because he's coasting more on the return, taking it easier. So that's a, a 60 watt difference between the first 59 miles and the second 52 miles. Annihilation. It's all about breaking spirits and whittling down the team. It's about mentally challenging everybody like this is the type of day it's going to be. Who's going to play up here? How are we going to play it? who are the contenders who's cycling strong who looks tired that's the posturing on the return on the way back from Javi it's all about posturing and positioning who looks like that didn't take much out of them who is mentally fresh and still attacking not attacking consistently but surging here and there seeing who goes with them um Who is in good spirits and eating and fueling and hydrating and and, and just preparing and staying within their day and still in control. That's the posturing. Positioning is about where we will be when we get off this bike. So now we broke the legs on the way out. Who is still with us? And then that group starts posturing and positioning on the way back for that ride, uh, for that run ahead. And that ride back, um, you know, two hours and 12 minutes, that's not a long time to be riding once you're positioned up front and a little bit of posturing and positioning. So very fascinating um, understanding of the course. And I mean, again, I've seen this for years. It's all about breaking and spirits. And so, and the strong cyclists will continue to surge at times or choose, let's say 20 miles out, 25 miles out or at the Waikoloa to just go, right? Because they know that they can't run that well. And run that well in the pro field means, let's say 37, 3.07, 3.05 and beyond, right? 3.10, 3.11, 3.15, forget it. I mean, you might as well not even bike that hard because you will just get run down by all the 2.50 to 2.55 guys. and. The posturing continues with regards to how far uh, do you allow the cyclist to break away? Again, we've shattered the legs, not shattered that we can't run effectively or that we're so beat up, but we've neutralized the field. Neutralized meaning everybody had to ride hard to Javi in order to stay with the day, stay with the group, right? This is where it's different than the age group field. You do not You don't get a chance to ride your watts. If the field is going, you got to go right your day is done if you just sit back there somewhere unless you're such a superior rider let's say at the high high end um in, in regards to elite cyclists not just traffic cyclist um, that you can ride the 350 or 340 for four and a half hours or four hours straight yeah well then you can just ride your watts and nobody's gonna you know <laughs> mess with you <laughs> because again you know lionel Sanders rode um overall a uh total ride was 415 so i mean 415 taking into account the entire workout was his his watts were Let's take a look his total watts were for the entire ride were 308 average was 297 so that's that's within reason um uh, plenty of athletes have done that even age groupers have done that um but uh Th- that means on that day, that turned out to be a 415, which means it was a pretty windy, uh, low wind, comfortable temperature day. That didn't tax them that much. But the point here is that, um what was I going to say? Oh, uh, neutralizing the field. So had he been able to ride that 330, uh, 332 all the way through, and he would have done a four zero five or 407 and if he can comfortably do that well then yeah he would do that because it takes less energy to ride um steady than it would to ride hard and then ride easy right um yeah you might argue well doesn't two hours and uh, two hours at uh 330 And then two hours and 15 minutes, let's say at 270, take less out of you because you have time during the 270, time to recover, rebuild, refuel. Um, No, because just the temperatures are rising. um, The day is no longer that easy um, with regards to environment. And don't forget, you already have that swim in you and you still have a marathon ahead of you. So it's a little bit different dynamic there. But that being said, it's about neutralizing the field. And neutralizing the field means, We're all tired, Tavi, we're all, you know, now that we've all created this fatigue, now that we've all gotten here and sort of, well, who still is game, right? Who still will have running legs in 52 miles from now? And not just running legs, but running legs for 26 miles. So it's about constantly creating annihilation, whittling down the field and the mental game of, all right, well, who still free, still feels fresh enough to go now attack now not necessarily attack in this huge big attack but sort of wind up the watts again and ride away to create a gap so that i have a five seven minute lead off the bike, and I'll run a 257. Right? So somebody else behind me is gonna have to run a 250 for us to be equal, and then to see what happens, right? And then the whole new dynamic begins on the run, right? Who runs hard on Ali, you know, to break spirits again, to surge away again, posturing body um, um image uh, uh, messaging, meaning, oh, that guy looks super relaxed and smiling and no, not like it's bothering him at all. Well, you don't see them again. And then you're up on the highway and you're like thinking that person's still running like that. Well, they just ran hard on lee. That's also part of the strategy. Like on the out and back, and when you pass the, the contenders and they're up front and they see each other and they're looking at each other like, um, oh, that guy's running super fast. So I'm gonna have to run super fast and, and waste energy. Or uh, I got a good gap, I'm, I'm still, I put a time on them on lee, and I'm continuing to put time on them up on the highway. I mean, again, so many different dynamics, right? Um, Run super easy on Ali'i, knowing that you can run the top 16 um, faster. And so that uh, there's guys, strong runners, who will mask their energy on Ali'i and sort of run a relaxed, let's say, 620 mile, Um, get the first seven, eight out of the way, get up on um, the highway, knowing that the field behind them thinks they're running a certain pace or saw them running a person but now you attack on the highway the next time they see you is in energy lab the run and the turnaround. there's eight miles to go there's a 10k to go once you're out on the highway again from energy lab like it's done and unless you're within 90 seconds there or with yeah something like within 90 seconds there or two minutes there your day is done you're not catching up two minutes in the last six miles. I mean, that means 30 seconds per mile. If you're already up there and a contender, that's a big differential, right? Um, and you basically only have until 25 to catch it because then it's a downhill and into the finish. Like So the, the real estate runs out there. So the dynamics are always changing and the mental game is always changing and who is breaking spirits and who's having their spirits broken, right? Um, and then there's the runners, right? <laughs> Right, the runners are able to sort of observe, and again, when you're a Patrick, when you're somebody who can run two forty on the back end, the buffer to the cyclist number one, knowing that that cyclist, even if he is a four ten cyclist on this given day, um, and you're a four twenty three cyclist, now you can run a two forty seven. He runs a three. You're still catching him, right? Because and we're going back to zero, and who's the faster runner once you catch him, but the 242 realm means that that faster cyclist still has to be a sub three a 259 three hour runner off of that 410 411 415 bike to still run that fast that patrick isn't catching you or the 245 marathoner isn't catching you and that's where this stuff really gets interesting and again it's a strategy question it's execution question and many times it's about building your knowledge and rapport on the island in order to do this properly right it took maca three or four times to figure this out what i'm talking about and sure i can talk about it and i've coached uh plenty of pros through the pro men's field on what happens there and why you have to do it the way you do it and why it's so important and then also another reason for the annihilation and breaking spirits is because of the winds you want to get out ahead of the winds and before the temperatures rise too much and you know if you're a 430 biker usually in in hawaii 425 five, four thirty. Your day is completely different than the 5.30 biker because the winds pick up, the trades, the temperatures, right? You start at 6.30 and you bike for four hours, four and a half hours. You're done, right? Um, before noon, hour with the swim, right? And so 50 minutes before noon, things are not really that overheated yet before noon. Now, sure, you're running in the heat and it is what it is, but still getting two thirds of your race done before the temperatures really hit their high point and the sun is really just grinding you again different dynamics 20 30 minutes makes a difference right for the age group field um for us to swim from seven to eight and then bike from eight to one it's a different animal the 11 30 to one o'clock is totally a different heat standpoint but not totally different, but a different heat standpoint, but surely a different wind standpoint. Different trades and winds pick up on the northern part of the island and the Waikoloa all the way into the Hualalai and the Four Seasons. So it's all strategy. And breaking spirits in the pro field is also about, you know, once you mentally challenge and, and, and broke the spirit, well, that pro, right? I'm not gonna kill myself to get 18th in Hawaii. I'm gonna shut it down. Um, And maybe, you know, go to Florida or go to Cozumel or go to a thing and get a good result or get my KPR points for next year or, you know, or there's others who also race this off the front right, they swim hard or hard relatively to them, even if they're not a swimmer. And then they bike off the front and with the front groups and just see, learn how far they can go and how far they can push because they know they're not winning it or they're not getting top five this year, maybe in a perfect world, top 10, but that quickly displays itself on how you're putting forth and the effort I need to put forth and now I still need to run and where do I pull back? And very, very strategic very very strategic race and the dynamics are so uh deep i say deep because it's about look it's about when you surge it's about the wattage you're holding about the questions you play on yourself with regards to man these guys are i'm I'm looking at my watts i'm holding 320 and these guys are riding away from me like i'm not making a gap into the field or or you swim wrong meaning you're two or three minutes too slow right? And you're a strong cyclist, but now you're too slow than, you, than what you planned. Now you're riding with a different group of riders up to the front of the field. Well, remember it's pacing, not um, 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 drafting, but you need those guys to pace you up to the front of the field. Sure, you might do a fair amount of work because you're the strongest cyclist in that group, but if you're in the wrong field, if you're in the wrong group, those two to three minutes quickly become five or six minutes because you're the one doing all the work. You're stronger than those those that next that third group of swimmers, that fourth group of swimmers that you got out with, right? Now your energy is being expended differently. Your your calorie burn is different. Um, you're you're getting to the front, sure, but what is it costing you, right? That's another reason why the front guys go, because now. We've already reduced the field by two or three strong cyclists that are in the wrong swim group. They have to work harder to come back up to us. Sure, they'll pace then when they're with us. They won't ride past us. But still, that was extra work. All the little tidbits of energy will display themselves over an eight-hour day. Eventually, you will run out. Eventually, you're just out of firepower and by doing it and annihilation and pressure on the bike you're already equalizing the field you're whittling it down creating that select group of who can truly win this who can truly be top three or four and then the games continue on the run like i said ali versus highway and where do you push i mean javier gomez was running sub five minute miles for a point on ali He, he was working hard to get to the front group now he would he would have settled in with the right group and then sort of postured and seen and positioned himself so that if there's a group as it displays itself that starts slowing down or blows up or that he could have moved and done his thing if he needed to 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 try to get into the top five or top four or top three or two right but again you have to at least play in the right group in order to even work up there now can he run a 245 marathon yes um, but again, if you come off the bike too far back or if they, you didn't swim fast, he's a fast swimmer. So, but how much they pressure him on the bike, again, that, there's so many strategic factors and I can talk about this forever <laughs> because it's all unfolding, right? The best way to see it is on the motorcycles during the race and how they're looking at each other and how they're posturing and how they're positioning and how they're surging to break away and reduce and wheel down the field. But then, you know, and so that the same thing, as I was saying, happens on the run. And yeah, then and of course, the, the ideal scenario is what I was saying, is when you're a Patrick or a strong runner in general, that you can swim with the field sort of close enough, um, ride up there with the front, and then still have that ace in the hole of that fast of a run, you know. Um, and the big thing there is understanding that the fast runners Have the ability to run relaxed, run their cadence, run their turnover, run their bounce, run their form and posture. So when a Patrick um, starts running and he's in fifth place or sixth place off the bike, that guy. Knowing, and you, we the pros all know each other's splits, know what they're capable of. Like a Patrick knows what Lionel Sanders has done in past Ironmans and runs and bikes. And so therefore knows, all right, he's about a this. On a good day, he'll run this. I'm running this. This is what I need, right? That math is happening. You don't do this in the age group field, but in the pro field, because you're a professional, this is what you have to know and have the the dynamics that that unfold but then throw in it running relaxed so what i was saying there is like three years ago um he was further back he wasn't as strong of a cyclist yet still building that huge engine to be able to cycle with the front group and he was learning about kona and he learned obviously three years ago that he needs to set up that bike differently and focus on the bike while not giving up on his run so he ran himself into third place, but I think he was like 14th off the bike or something like that. And ran that 2:39, that famous 2:39 on that course, um, which is crazy. Anyway, but um, but then last year he got off the bike top 10. I think he was eighth or seventh even, and now throw in that he also saw as he was moving through the field ever so gradually, nothing rushed, because again, he was way more confident. He's like, I ran a 239 here last year. Who are the seven people ahead of me? I know exactly what I'm doing. Just gonna observe and relax and, and find my own feel for the run and see how it shakes out. And then as it's shaking out, and this happens in the in any program, It happened this past week anyway, as it's shaking out, you sort of already project how you're working. Oh my gosh, so-and-so dropped out. Or, oh my gosh, I'm running this and it feels great. Everybody else seems to be, they, they probably biked a bit too hard. I'm just gonna stay here and, and it looks like I'm working my way forward through the field without using that much energy. And so last year, you know, the boost of confidence, but also the, the exhale relaxing when he saw Fredano on the side of the road, like somebody where it's like, oh, this guy, I don't know if I can run him down and he has a nine minute lead on me on the bike, right? Or something like that. Because I think Jan was first off the bike last year or close to it. Um, and, or no, you know, he's uh, second or third because Cam Worf, I think, was first again last year. But um, to see him on the side and the lead now, my toughest competitor or the one that I worry about with the running, because Jan can run a 244, 245 there, is gone now. Patrick runs way more relaxed. He exhales and just allows the running to take over. His own legs, he's not forcing anything. He doesn't have to surge up anywhere. He's like, if I just run relaxed, my relaxed pace will put me to the front of the field. Um, obviously looking for better than third because that's what he was three years ago. So, and then next thing you know, he's in first not without even putting pressure on himself without even not pressure of his nerves, but pressure taxing his system or, or having to run hard he ran his own pace feel speed of course not going easy but his he's controlling the race not the placings in front of him and now throw into it this year again he got off the bike and he was now even further up on the in after the bike and fifth or sixth i think it was sixth And now he's running also relaxed again. Like, okay, just run relaxed. See once I'm up on the highway where things have shaken out. Can I run faster if I'm under pressure? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I'm gonna just run my race. And then when I need myself to dig in, to push harder, to cognitively also tax more on my brain and focus and hunker down and dig that extra deep spot, i can because i've been running relaxed for the first eight to ten miles now that's when the fun really begins usually not fun but that that truly race he didn't need to do that right he got out onto the highway and took over first and just ran just ran and ran and ran now at some point record numbers began breaking eight became in the, in his head but he was already tracking so far ahead of that I am sure not only was he telling himself, but his handlers too and Ferris, his coach, like just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep running how you are currently running. You're running a great pace. And if you just stay here, you'll do X, right? Like we've all felt that in our runs or in our races, um, that if I just maintain, which feels feasible, right? In our mind, despite the fatigue, if I just stay here at this rate at this effort level at this pace i'm gonna do a great day that's a, it automatically relaxes you and that allows you to run in many cases even better so yeah the pro field so much going on there and and you throw in the swimmers too right and, and you know josh ambergrish file here you know so lionel sanders rode um that first half in 328 332 when you look at um, files, Josh, a lot, a smaller guy, not as big as Lionel Sanders, but swimming on the front end, he sw- he rode the first, um, and they got to Javi basically at the same time. I don't know how fast um, Lionel Sanders swam. They both went. Sw- uh, they both, both it. Um, two seventeen. It looks like two seventeen. Josh got to Javi. And uh, Lionel Sanders got to have the in, let's take a look here, in 2.15. So Lionel Sanders made up two minutes on that. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know what the, regards to placing um, where Josh was if he had moved back there already and, and was only a minute ahead of Lionel Sanders and now a minute behind. Um, however, that dynamic works out. But in comparison, from body size and power and wattages. Josh got up to have the, in 270, 265 (laughs) normalized watts. So 70 watts lower than Lionel Sanders. Now, what did that cost him? What was the tax there? Again, breaking spirits, annihilation, pressure, hammer, right? is it because of the swim that Josh could ride 70 watts less and get to the same point in Javi um, with the front group? Just think of the energy savings there usually. But also interesting to note is that Josh's first, 50, uh, first uh, Javi, it's more than 56. It's it's closer to 60 because you do a loop in town first. Then normalized an average watts was a difference of 14 watts. So different riding style too. Um, because he's up front and swam so fast he 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 coasts there are some zeros in there and some easier pedaling time right um maybe he's with the group and pacing differently so he can sit in and not necessarily avoid wind but if the the pacer up front is going at a certain speed and it's not you you don't feel like being up front and setting the pace well there's definitely times you're not soft pedaling, but you're not putting as much pressure on the pedals. And don't get me wrong, pacing is always faster than riding yourself. Um, Because despite not having any wind aid, you are still being pulled along due to somebody else setting the speed. And if that's within your range, within your abilities, it's getting you to the point B just as fast but somebody else is setting the tempo, and it allows you to sort of pace ten meters behind and so forth. And so those things all add up and make a big difference. But that shows you the the riding style. It looks like Lionel had to ride way harder. Maybe he was leading his pace group for bigger sections. And we both don't know right now. I don't know based off the results what that means for the run and how that uh, unfolded. But Again, um, the two of them were not in the top three or four or five of the race, so therefore the runners took over, right? And again, cool run, a cool bike, hot run. How did that display itself? Did people overbike? Now, in the age group field, a ton of people overbiked, um, but that's an experience question, um, over biking in the pro field is a different animal. Because again, you need to whittle down the field, you need to be up front. you need to put pressure on people. And you know, this is how it works. Um, this is how, you know, there's times too, where you just also throw caution to the wind and see if you can use the real estate to your advantage. Um, what that means is for somebody a strong cyclist, um, like a Cam Worf, or even a Lionel Sanders, there's going to be races and maybe even a Kona someday where that strong bike out there, heading out there, doing what you got to do, and then running your run, let's say a 305, but because of the gap and the strong bike you put forth, you might hang on far enough, close enough to the finish that you um, flip the script on the field. And what that means is you all have seen it, familiar, familiar with it at the Tour, the Tour de France. When the breakaway actually sees that they can win the stage, the dynamics and the speed actually oftentimes picks up. They run with a different excitement and hope and um, positive energy because they're like, "We're going to do this." And then it, they, they have a second burst of excitement, speed, energy, perspective, right? And they hold them off, and you know, they, they. Um, fight amongst each other or even the solo breakaway when they make when they realize oh my gosh i'm going to do it they have that extra tongue hanging out extra few pushes and wattages and off they go well same thing here sometimes every now and then you can flip the script on the field and what that means is you've gotten far enough into the run at your pace hanging on while the entire race is chasing you right trying to get you um and pass you so that the runners can take over um and they're not getting close enough to really either take the race away from you or um take you out of the top three let's say and then again you, what that is is you you um flip the script on the field which means now you're running relaxed now you're seeing there's only four miles to go those guys aren't coming or the only one guy or two guys have come oh my gosh this this is gonna work (laughs) I biked off the front like Chris Lieto did that a couple of years ago and it was awesome it was amazing to watch like he barely 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 ran out of real estate he was leading the race until about mile he was out of energy lab I'm pretty sure so That back then, this year was a new energy lab course, different run course. So um, it was, uh, it must have been mile 22 or something like that where he got passed. Um, But again, he got second and he rode off the front on the bike and he uh, attacked and surged away from the field early. So despite the hammer to Havi, recovered a bit back down from Havi to Kauai, and then at the Waikaloa a little bit further, off he went. And he put a good 12 minutes onto the field that year. I think it was 12 or eight minutes, but they did not, and he ran well. And they did not catch him. It did not catch him. And running out of energy lab, he basically saw, I can hang on. If I can just run, I might be able to do this. Now he got caught by one guy I think it was Raylert but um everybody else he broke their spirits he he it was too far too much real estate and then he got his own well he didn't get his own second one but he was running relaxed and he knew he was gonna do it there were some other factors going on there as well but again there is that chance to flip the script on the field so yeah many different scenarios in the pro race and and the swim and the run and how it all comes together But in closing, that race goes all about annihilation, whittling down the field. And what I often say in race strategy for age groupers too is put yourself in a position to be in a place where you can then manage, project, dictate, control your outcome. And so the pros do this. You wanna get that far into the run that you're with the proper people, or you can predict, project, see how you will bring this home and who is realistically still gonna pass you and how to play the strategy with three people versus 15 people, right? That's the, the purpose here. Um, Macca is a great example with that, with his learning and his observations over the first few arguments where he DNF'd and didn't finish that well. He was learning to put himself in a position to then eventually truly race when it's time to race. And Patrick last year, same thing. He didn't know Ferdano would uh, would drop, right? But he was in a position that when it did happen, he could go. And same thing this year in some of the dynamics in the top 10, not in the top uh, two or three, they were all under eight and pretty locked in their race. but. Uh, amongst uh, three, uh, four through 10 movements were happening where it's like you look around, you're in the run, you're at mile 16 or you're entering energy lab and it's like, all right, you know, right, I'm down to three or four people here that can mess with that top five. It's time to put something down or to see what I can do or wow, that guy just fell off. His pace is breaking, I'm going. And you wanna be in a position to do that and that's the men's profile. so. Women's pro field is a little bit different. I mean, the depth there is missing to do the annihilation, right? Um, you have a Lucy Charles who swims off the front and starts biking and a few other girls who can go swim with her and ride with her up front. But then Daniela, her ability is what I was saying, that 350 watts in the guy's field just riding straight through and knowing that and having confidence from training results and past other races as well as past wise, that if i hold this output it will put me at this time i'm pretty confident that not many others in the field that can swim as well as bite run as well as, run as well as i can can hold this wattage so i'm going to hold my wattage right and sure she's in control of her day daniela she sees her numbers. She knows what she's riding. She works her way through the field. She sees Lucy up there or in others playing around, not playing around in an, I'm not saying that in a negative way, but um, racing on the course around her. But she just continues to stay in her wattage range. And it's not hard. It's not, it's not like she's out of her comfort zone. It's what she's trained. It's what she's prepared for. And there might even be days where it's like, all right, that wattage is comfortable. I'm going to push a little harder here for 30 minutes. 20 minutes and then next thing you know (laughs) and then or um i can hold this wattage wow it's a cool day this wattage is taxing me very little i'm able to hold it quite comfortably and the lack of wind is giving me this bike split i i would have ridden that same wattage if it's hot windy cold uphill downhill whatever but wow on a day like this i just broke the bike course record by you know, 12 minutes, I think it was, which it made, I think she broke it by more. Like 20 minutes or something like that, 18 minutes, something crazy like that. But again, I don't think she was eyeing or gun again. This is my opinion. I don't think she was gunning for the bike course record. I think that just transpired. It just happened because she rode her day. And riding her day in the past has put her to the front of the field. And so she's like, why would I change my strategy? I'm fitter, stronger, or maybe not as fit, but whatever. I'm going to stick to my strategy, which puts me to the front of the field. Now, then she assesses. I'm off the bike. I'm on a lee. I can see who's up there, who's running well, who's in. I know my abilities. I can run a sub three hour marathon here, <laughs> which is awesome too. And then she just runs relaxed, and just continues to assess and continues to observe and under no duress. Or nothing stressing her. And as she goes further into the run, things, the feel comes back to her. It comes back to her and it allows her to just run through it. And others are working hard to stay ahead of her, but she's just running. And again, many of you might know that feeling too, where it's like, I'm just running and everybody else seems to be slowing down. Well, why change anything? And again, given that that bike, didn't tax her that much because she just rides with what she's familiar with, with training and her numbers and within her ranges. Now, even if the temperatures heat up and the day, now she's so far ahead of her avatar of her best self from last year or her old world record time because of that bike. She doesn't have to run faster. She doesn't have to run a record pace. And I don't think she did run her best run in um, Hawaii this year. I think she just ran. And that still got her a world record and shattered that time. So yeah, that's that's the women's profile. And and Lucy does will have to do it differently, not in any type of critical fashion, but she's such a strong swimmer. It's like, how do you mess with that gap? Right. And you know, of course, there's some thoughts I would have behind that, but I, I don't know her as an athlete and her abilities and her strengths and her, her mindset and so forth. So it's different. So who am I to know this? And obviously her coaches who work through this. So um, yeah, yeah, so that's that. that's the women's race. And then the age group race. So the first question becomes, what makes the age group race different? The age group race is more about pacing. You're not paying attention to your competitors the entire race. And therefore, you settle into what your capabilities are and your fitness is. And again, this is uh, describing the front of the race. This isn't describing um, completing Ironman Hawaii or um, not trying to be competitive within the podium of the top five. Remember, in Kona, the podium is top five. Um, So, but um, because of the day, because of the number of people, because of the way you identify your competitors, um, the age group race therefore unfolds differently. Now, again, I can only speak of this from my perspective. Um, I've been in the competitive age group race a lot, not all my years, but a lot. And, um, it also reflects a little bit how I like to race it, but I've, seen how many others try to race it as well. And I've also been very successful racing it. But this year, again, because of the bike conditions, things got thrown a little bit on their head. Um, The other caveat with the age group race is the amount of drafting that happens. And so the race dynamics unfold a little different, not completely different. Um, A lot of athletes like to think that the drafting has a huge impact on the race. I don't necessarily believe it like that. I believe that drafting does have an impact. It puts the um, not-so-strong bikers further forward in the race at certain real estate, at certain distances in the race. But a course like Kona, uh, in my experience, and again, okay, I haven't done it in the last three years. It's been three years since I did it. So three years ago. So I haven't done it. Yeah, no. Uh, 16, 17 and 18. Now three years. Um, so maybe that's gotten even worse, but I don't necessarily think so. And what I mean by that is early on in the bike, in the on the bike leg, absolutely. There are huge packs. I mean, just take a look at Macca's Instagram feed and updates from during the race. I mean, it's it's crazy, right? But again, out of fairness to the race and understanding it, there's just a lot of people coming out of the water at the same time. And for the for the groupings and the number of people to break up, um, it makes it challenging. And there's always going to be drafters in the race in the age group race. Because also, in my opinion, that's how they qualified. Um, so that's the only way they know how to race. And I don't like to label it a certain way, but there's definitely regions of the world where, uh, the race dynamics are different. The race dynamics in Europe are different than North America, than they are in South America, than they are in Asia. It is just what it is, um. I'm not gonna say which one is worse or better, but there's definitely regions where it's just different. It's more accepted and it's different racing. And that's totally fine. I'm not necessarily saying that you're a, uh, some sort of bad person just because you draft. If that's how it's done in your region, well,' you're, you're sort of playing by the rules as that region allows it to. Um, so but that's a different discussion um, Anyway. Given the course in Kona, I believe, that come the return, once you're 70, 80 miles in, and you're past the Waikaloa on the way back, things have always spread out. Um, even the drafted cyclist um, is exposed. And what happens then is, in most cases, the athlete that drafts on the bike is one riding above their potential. Now, of course, there's huge draft packs early on where you can basically sit up and spin. But that doesn't stay like that because at the end of the day, most people in the draft group, besides a few lone um, uh, cheaters in that respect, they truly have no interest in working their way up or riding their own race, they're happy to just sit in the group and sit up and just sort of uh, laugh about it. And I'm not addressing them. I'm talking more about those that really care about their result and their outcome and how they're putting forth their race. Um, The draft pack spreads out and there's enough people trying to break out of it or move ahead of it. Because anybody who's been caught in a draft pack knows that... um, You don't know if it's going fast enough for you, if you're capable of putting forth more watts, if it's distracting you, if it's taking away from executing your race strategy because you're constantly worried about getting a penalty or even getting your second penalty in many cases. Um, So it's not your day. It's not the way you want to enjoy your day, the way you envisioned your day in training for many months. Again, this is under the caveat that you're not one of those, that that's how they go about racing in the first place. Um, so then on the way back, you're at the Waikoloa. I mean, those draft packs are tiny then, maybe three or four, and you're fully exposed to wind. And now often what happens is you are racing above your pay grade. Um, you're exposed in the wind, the stronger riders who are, who should be up there anyway, they know how to ride away, leave you exposed and you just get kicked out the back. And if you don't, if you ride too hard, it will sort itself out on the run. So I believe it has an impact of the, on the race for sure, but I personally have not seen it truly have a big impact on the front of the race. In all my years of doing Kona, I've gotten plenty frustrated with the draft packs on the bike, but by the back end of the bike, in most cases has sorted itself out there's definitely still a few packs packs being three or four people and trust me I've gotten plenty frustrated because at this point they've caught me now because usually I'm lucky enough um, a good enough swimmer to have ridden off the front due to my head start on the swim and yeah it's frustrating and yeah it, it, it distracts because you're like, you know, who knows if this person now is a super strong runner and they've got themselves pulled through the bike course. But ego seems to also play a role here because the person pulling the drafter eventually also gets frustrated. And so the trade-off and the drafter having to push in the wind means that they're often exposed and kicked out the back. Because The stronger rider, the one who's up there anyway, will ride away, will eventually accelerate, will eventually get frustrated. It's not like they have an agreement. Every now and then, yes, that happens too. But again, exposed at the front of the race um, means some different things. And what I've found also over all my years of Ironman triathlon is that the, 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 the drafters and the people who have the uh, versus the people that have the fitness, it sorts itself out on the run because the draftee is already cheating the system, cheating themselves, and therefore their run times, if they were a 305, 310 runner on the back of an Ironman, they would have already been displayed that over the years and been a strong enough athlete Um, Ironman triathlete to not even get caught up in the draft world being a 340 or 345 or 330 runner and drafting well sure that that is a is a method to maybe qualify in certain plots spots in the world but again you run a 330 you don't have the ability to run a 320 or faster in Kona you're not going to be in the front anyway, top 10, whatever. So you know, I know it might sound a little pompous, but I, in my observations, have therefore not worried about it as much. Um, a, it sorts itself out on the bike, and uh, laid on the bike, and B, it surely sorts itself out on the run. So the combination of the two usually makes that happen, unfold properly, that the right people are up front. Um, again, there's definitely people up front who shouldn't be up there in some years or in some cases. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that as a blanket statement. So, and and quite honestly, those, those athletes also get exposed. Um, we all know the numbers, right? You see, um, and, and this is a side tangent, we all see who's drafting after a while because the, the field gets so whittled down you know who's truly just there for to cheat and you just remember the number their race number and if they're up front at the end (laughs) as many of my friends and people around me know over the years I call them out right there on the stage if I need to um um, I'll say you're cheating or you're drafted or you're a cheater or you know (laughs) I don't hesitate because, again, I'm too involved in this sport and I care too much about fair play. Maybe that's the the way to put it. So Kona this year, age group race this year. So the bike course, um, so you pace your own event, right? And then eventually come the run, very similar to the pro field, you sort of evaluate where you're at. But in the age group race overall, you're looking for a time. And that time usually sets you up to be in the front of the field. And then if you continue on that time, you can start counting and doing the math. Um, In my opinion, the best age groupers don't start paying attention to their placing until about 10 miles into the run. Of course, you want to know it or pay attention to it off the bike. Um, because that gives you a good sample size and gives you a good inkling of where you are versus the field. But things don't really shake out until about 10 miles into the run. Um, That's where in the past I've also um, started whether making my move or really paying attention to placing versus pacing. Um, Now, yeah, I think that covers the strategy from that perspective. Just to flip the coin there and show the other side if you were to race people right off the beginning or early in the bike you're caught counting numbers confusion you don't know who's up and who's behind you don't know where everybody is you don't know who's who necessarily you don't know what the numbers mean of course they put the um race numbers in order of age group so let's say the the 1200 to 1500 numbers are uh, men's 40 to 44 and then the 1500 to 1800 numbers are men's 45 to 49 right so you know the range but again you don't know who's ahead who's behind who's moving through the field what's going on in the pro field you're separated it's just you it's the 50 of you you all know each other you know numbers you you see the dynamics that's not that hard to hold on to or or um, work around in the age group field you're, you you miss half the people a because they're in those draft packs right so you can't count who's in there and who's doing what and what their numbers are if they're in your age group plus you don't know who swam up ahead, right? It's a mass start with all those people, like who who in your age group is ahead? Where, so a lot of energy spent if you're paying attention to that. Now, in most cases, me personally, I'm lucky. Like I said, I get to control the race from the front because I usually win the swim, whether in Hawaii or any Ironman. And so therefore... I do have the ability to know all day long what place I'm in, because I can see those that pass me unless they're in huge draft groups. And that's a different issue anyway. And that has happened to me, but, um, so it does allow me to, to pay attention like that and pretty much know to a place or two where I'm at and sort of gauge my output, my effort, and so forth. But again, I'm still mainly paying attention to my watts, to my pace for the day, to where that's netting me today off the bike. And that brings me to this year of Kona. The cooler bike this year was very, very visible early on with the bike splits, so what happened to a lot of age groupers in the during the bike split was seeing these splits, seeing these times based off of the numbers, the wattages, or the effort they were holding put them way ahead of what they were thinking. It was an easier day for them, um, whether in feel because of the temperature or because of the prevailing conditions being easier. So mentally that plays out like this. I usually think I'm going to be in Javi at 2.20 or 2.25 into the race. Now I'm there at 2.15. I'm having an amazing day. I'm back at the Waikoloa in you know, three hours. My gosh, I'm 10 minutes ahead of what I thought would be a really good day. Um, now, couple that with, I'm not really riding that hard. It's cooler temperatures you know, I'm going for it or not necessarily going all out, but I'm, I'm going to bring the effort up because this is the, the conditions are easier. Big mistake, right? Now you're compromising your day based off of what the environment is telling you from an effort standpoint. You don't want to do that. You want to stick to your wattages, your pacing, your heart rate, your output, your energy levels. And if on a good day, at the same energy levels, you feel great, and it's netting you a faster time, well, you are using that, hopefully, to conserve even more energy to really have your best possible run. And what happened to a lot of age groupers, even the front of the age group field, even some very, very experienced multi-world champion triathletes, as in um, age group triathletes, um, rode a tick too hard and they knew it they knew it when they got off the bike they were chasing or pleasantly surprised with their split during the bike and they were um rolling with it they're like wow I could split you know 435 440 450 455 440 fastest bike split I've ever had in Kona if you have experience there or just in general when it's your first like wow i'm gonna split x in kona this ain't so hard what about kona right um so we have a tendency to overextend our effort because the prevailing conditions and the um, temperatures were allowing you to have what was a faster day faster than expected and so what we really saw is those that are Experience in their own self control, in their ability to um, manage their impulses long enough, had a great run. They were able to put forth a great run. Why? Because that run was still very hot and very difficult. Um, that's when the sun came out. That's when the temperatures heated up. And so the runs were pretty steady. Of course, there were outliers but pretty steady with regards to past years. But given that the bike was easier, some people, and overall I would say the majority had a little bit faster run just because they weren't as fatigued off the bike. Um, But that was the devil's game that you played you either had a great bike split and you overextended your bike a bit because you were so excited to have that faster bike split. You went with it and you pushed harder and um, found yourself back to square one on the run because you realized you biked too hard. Or You were pretty conservative on the bike, allowed the day to just happen because you stuck to your plan and it netted you maybe only five or six minutes faster on the bike versus 10 or up to 15 minutes faster on the bike than planned. But then therefore you still were able to run your run. And it was interesting to watch. It was um, watching a lot of age group triathletes either having blown themselves up on the bike or blown... um, or not and therefore rolling with it and that's the main lesson out of even a kona in this case is there'll be days where things are clicking and they're coming towards you with regards to an easier day i will remember the last time we had a very easy bike ride or easier bike ride in kona that was in 2006 a ton of age group records were broken um and I remember returning to the Four Seasons in Huala Lai about ooh, 10 minutes faster than I thought I would. And I was dead on my watts. I was dead on my pace. I was dead on everywhere I wanted to be my time checks. I just kept being ahead of that. And then it misted on us and it started cooling us off. And I was like, this is amazing. Now when it usually gets hard the last 20 miles, 25 miles, I'm getting this cool mist and cloud cover and so I was able to carry that momentum home and I didn't ride harder absolutely not because I still knew that this and you could see on the cloud cover too that it was you know temporary it wasn't going to stay like that and it got very very hot on the run but we all went record times I think that year I did a a 855 and or 856 in Kona and that still put me third place in the age group because it again it made everything faster but the the purpose of me highlighting that is knowing that the most important real estate in an ironman even in kona is the marathon and if you have the ability just like the pros to run an effectively fast marathon you will have a lot of success not only in kona but in the sport in general Um, because like i always say you can always manipulate your bike fitness um, but you can't manipulate your run fitness. Um, the level playing field by the time we all get off the bike in T2 and how we're able to run, that becomes the, the question. If you're a runner and if you know you can run well, um, it's a huge ace in the hole. Um, and that's, that's something I've talked about also on this podcast. There, most of those pro, cycl- pro riders, uh, pro triathletes up front, Um, that are strong runners they're fully capable of biking faster if you train with them you'll find that they're incredibly strong cyclists um, and that they actually can display more prowess on the bike in in an Ironman or even in Kona if they wanted to but they don't need to nor do they want to compromise the strongest leg that they have available Um, Again, I keep falling back to MacA because I know how we went through those years. We we were um, around each other a fair amount in races. Um, And so I know him as well. We raced each other a few times and and gave each other a lot of grief. (laughs) But his progression in Kona, he's a way stronger cyclist than he displayed on the bike courses in all the years of Kona. And that's because he was holding a little bit of energy in the bank for two reasons, of course, for that run. But also in order to have that little bit extra, because when racing comes down to truly racing head to head with the railerts or head to head with some of the bigger names in the sport, then he needed to know that he had that little extra reserve to, you know, run himself inside out, right? Um, and he did. And, he, and he, he gradually, after observing, after taking some ego blows, which is hard because I believe that he was literally, he wanted to win, but he also knew that all this was just making him a better athlete, a better racer, and that he had future wins in him even the years when he dnf'd or didn't finish like he wanted to i think he was smart enough to accumulate knowledge so that when those races came that he did win he had a huge data bank and observations and learning and familiarity with that course with how he felt with how he needs to go about it and how he needs to manage all the real estate and i think that's very similar applicable in the age group race There might be years where you get caught up behind um, a lot of front end racers and you don't have the day you want to have. Now, you look at your times and you go, typically that would have won, or typically that would have put me in the top five or top 10. But this year, you know, I got 14th. Why? You know, I missed some of the, I miscounted, I had some hard stretches and so forth. All of that helps prepare us for future Kona races. And and build that arsenal of knowledge, of familiarity with the real estate, of the difficulty, right? And you know, I had a, a friend race the age group race this year. Um, and he's a former world champion in the age group. He's a former world record holder in the age groups, and he had a different different day. Uh, different day, difficult day. And he is one of those people who said he overbiked. Um, I saw him early on the run at mile one or two, and I checked in with him, I ran with him for a few hundred feet, and um, he right away said, I think I overbiked. You know, was he stoked about his bike split? Of course, he broke five hours, he's in the 60 to 65 age group, I mean, that's awesome, right? But in hindsight, I am sure, and he knows this, he's done Kona seven times, right? Um, he knows this, and I'm sure in hindsight, he says, I would have rather bike to 5.07, and run 15 minutes faster on the marathon. Net-net is maybe only seven minutes total faster, eight minutes total faster. But another thing to keep in mind for racing the marathon in an Ironman, especially in Kona, and this applies to the pro field as well as the age group field. Um, And I, I alluded to it earlier with regards to the running. If you're further up there, And you you might, if on paper afterwards, you might have still lost by two, three minutes, right? Just because you go eight minutes faster um, or seven minutes faster, like I was just saying. But again, if you're in the fight, if you're being hunted or the huntee, at um, five or six miles to go, uh, seven, eight miles to go, remember there's different dynamics then that you pull out of yourself and your mental space is stronger you're closing in you are in control of your outcome versus being the hunted slowing down he was first in the age group I think off the bike um, and so the, the field his age group it was coming for him and the mental games that play out there as people are closing in on you, no matter what kind of lead you have is a different energy and a different dynamic than when you are closing in on the front. And again, I can speak from experience there because in all my years, um, I don't think I've ever been, well, I was once, um, first off the bike in in Kona, I've always run myself to the front and It is a powerful feeling knowing that I'm in, like I said earlier about Patrick, in my stride, in my flow, in my running form, running the race I want to run versus being up front and having the heat come on you, right? The pressure catching you. And so in this case, my friend would have been further up in the race. He would have observed more the racing dynamic and maybe he would have been able to hold pace longer find a different type of mental approach for those last five or six miles and therefore hold on to the victory or maybe he would have gotten yeah well he would have still gotten off the bike in first but instead of by 20 minutes he would have gotten off the bike in first by 10 minutes felt way better had more control been more in his space and could have run with the second place guy when he caught him, um, better. And so in general, um, back to what I was saying before, it's that learning, that toolbox, that arsenal as it grows is incredibly important. Now, will he come back next year to race? He's not sure. And I had a conversation with Emily and my friend Taylor, um, watching the race and my questions with regards to returning and and the 50 to 55 age group and racing that race again you know and there's a part of me and I've expressed this and it's it's a vulnerable side that is like well there's a lot that you risk by going back to Kona in, in my case because you know I can't get any better than winning my age group like the last time I was in Kona And so I can only go the same or backwards. Um, And so one would say, one could argue, well, then why do it? Why go back if you have to time this long growth, this long return to fitness, this long ability to withstand the heat and the difficulty of the day and the pounding of the pavement and the training and so forth to have it all come together on that one day where other competitors could easily, you know, be just as strong or stronger. I could get fifth again. I've been fifth, I've been sixth, I've been seventh, I've been third, I've <laughs> been them all. Um sure, that that is a logical reason. But just like I said to my friend, it's like in the struggle lies the growth, right? I, I'm not going to not play in the arena because of fear that i won't have my day i am not going to um avoid the struggle because what i'll learn in the year or maybe even it'll take me two years to return to that level of fitness what i'll learn about myself who i am my fitness my coaching ability My observations as a 50-year-old, 51-year-old at that time um, will only make me a better coach, a better person, a better athlete, a better communicator, a better person to overcome struggles and understand the trials of tribulations of being an athlete. Being an athlete is about not about failing, about learning and who I was at 45, 46, 47, 42, 38, 33, 35 when I raced this sport and who I am now is a different person. And I want to observe that again and learn that again and grow with that again. And so absolutely not avoiding that potential not doing as well and instead going and living and learning and growing from that right getting your ass kicked builds lessons you learn from that growth we've all gotten our ass kicked as athletes and that's what makes us athletes when we get our ass kicked and we come back and we ask for more not necessarily for more ass kicking but we. Um, we're not sitting there like in platoon or full metal jacket. I forget which one. Yes, sir, may I have another. Instead, it's more, okay, I see how this works. Let me see how I can do this better now. And I might still get my ass kicked, but I'm going to be ready for those blows. And I'm going to be ready to understand it better. And I'm going to be um, have maybe some alternatives or have processed it differently. And I'm ready to grow from that, right? I heard a quote the other day um ships are safe in the harbor right but ships aren't built for the harbor they're built for the open ocean and i can see that the same way as i told my friend in kona i was like this isn't about retreating and being safe and knowing oh i could do this it's about finding out and it's about you're a ship you're not built for the harbor you're built for the open ocean and you do the racing well and from that perspective if you allow this day this second place that he got in kona to um, define how you feel about it not define who you are but define how you feel about it then the athlete that you are is different right um And it's about, and and I'm I'm, I'm hesitating here or I'm stuttering my words because I also don't wanna say that this is for self-validation for him or any type of ego thing. But when you're doing this at that level as he does in his 60s um, and you have the time and it's your profession with regards to coaching and just being an overall real giver in the community, well, then yeah, go do it and go get that smile and that satisfaction and that completion and that growth and overcoming that struggle and, you know, be that person that, um, that you want to be, right? Um, it's exactly in that risk, in that growth, in that struggle where the learning is. And we've talked about that on this podcast it's where we feel most alive in most cases we as humans we as humans who have an an interest to being open and growing and progressing and when you're on that edge of struggle of risk of curiosity we learn the most. It's like an exponential learning, but you're also more alive and you're more alert and you're able to process better and everything fires quicker, smarter, better, stronger. And if you take that over two, three years of growing your Ironman and your endurance ability, well, so be it. So, well, that's the age group race. What else happened? I talked about Jan and his swim approach. I talked about understanding the outcome For some, there's the experience, some are there to race, and what I mean by that with Kona is um, know what you're there for when you get to Kona. Um, I've talked to that with with my athletes competing every year. Um, Are they there to experience the race because it's their first time, and I want them to enjoy it and embrace it and take it all in and feel it? Or are they there to race? And when you're there to race, it also changes the priorities of your training lead up and so forth and how you're going about it. So, you know, that's that's a different conversation with an individual athlete on how they want to approach it. So, all right. I think uh, that's about it with Kona episode 2018. I'm going to call this the Kona episode because... We basically only talked about Kona. (laughs) So um, I thank you all for listening. I hope I provided some insights with how that race goes. Um, Oh, I did remember one thing because I'm looking at my notes here from uh, the race. And this applies to all endurance sports um, that we work with here on the podcast, especially in Ironman and in Kona Um, for the race strategy for a couple of my athletes was um, broken down like this and you can do it in trail running you can do it in almost any type of uh, changing terrain um, environment maybe not on the track there you have to do it in different ways but um, overall in endurance um, racing we broke up the race into several pieces and um Breaking up the race into several pieces allows for you to feel a completion point, a checkpoint, and a clean line to move forward from. What I mean by that is, for example, the bike in Kona is broken down into a 7-mile stretch in town, a 32.8-mile stretch on the Queen K up to um, Kwai and then a mile and a half downhill into the base of the Javi Climb, then it's 17 miles up to Javi, (laughs) then it's 17 miles back down from Javi, then it's that mile and a half back up, then the 33.8 back to town. That adds up to about 112 miles. So what I talk about with athletes on that is finish the seven-mile stretch with your intentions, your goals, your fueling, your hydration as you want it. And then as you are on the highway and you've completed that stretch, it's like a mental checkbox. It's a little box in your mind that you now put the check mark into because you fueled, you hydrated, hydrated, you paced, you executed that stretch well or according to plan. Now we're done with that. We don't even think that. We it's not part of our equation anymore. We know we did everything right on that, so we don't need to add up our fueling and our hydration and our calories and our watts up until that point it's done we've done it correctly therefore we can write it off and put it away next our next section 32.8 miles we want to do that let's say in an hour and 20 minutes up to high. so for the next hour and 20 minutes we're going to focus on hydration fueling what kind of wattages the rollers the downhills the flats the pacing the sensations the cadences the riding skills and so forth But we get that done, we check that box, right? Now, as you check the boxes, there's seven boxes for the entire bike ride. Not only is there a sense of completion, subconsciously feeling really good about checking the box, but it also allows your mind to have to think less about what you did backwards and try to remember how many bottles you drank and how many calories you ate because you check that box and wipe it from your memory in that respect, you actually can focus in this case on the remaining five sections, right? And now you just cut the race off 40 miles. So now you're at, you know, mile 72. And that makes it easier to process. I have 72 more miles, these five sections, and just keep checking the box, executing that piece. If you're behind in calories or behind in fuel uh, and hydration up until that point, well, then you make a note only on what you need to carry in more. So for the next section, I'm a little low on hydration. I should drink an extra half bottle. So all you have to remember for the next section or next longer section, if that's too short of a section, um, is, all right, remember extra half bottle, right? And then the usual strategy for that section But what we do is we break that down. We make our notes and and work through that and have a good understanding of that in the days before. And then that way, we've studied that. We've um, sort of embedded that in our memory. So that then come race day, all we're doing is executing each one of those boxes in the notes we made. And it does make the race go by a lot quicker. We did the same thing for the run. We had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sections. Same thing. (laughs) on the run and you know execute each section well and even then if one section doesn't go well you still have the other six sections or if two don't go well the other five sections to have a successful outcome with regards to um right i lost not i'm trying to describe if two sections go incorrectly if the other five go well you're still probably going to have a good day. And also, let's say if you're walking on the marathon and and during one of the sections, and not the whole thing, but at times, and you just need to reboot. Well, you can focus on the remaining sections to, walk, uh, to run or how your strategy will be for the remaining sections in order to still have your day, right? If you put all those 14 sections together, in this case in Kona, for the run, and the bike and let's say you add the swim I didn't really put the swim in any sections but let's say for the bike and the run you had 14 sections and you can execute successfully on 10 11 or 12 of them you're gonna have a good day right but it's it's hard to imagine perfectly executing all 14 but I mean and those are the best days right where they all come together but Again, just execute your sections and it makes a different race strategy. It makes, takes you into more process management, task orientation versus, oh my gosh, I still have 80 miles to bike or oh, I still have 20 miles to run. This all feels the same. Break it into section. and allows you to really focus on each section individually and gradually plug away and put together a good race because of the sections all fitting together. And you can do the same thing in trail running, for example, or, you know, you break down your race in certain sections, certain climbs, certain flats, certain mileages, certain landmarks, and so forth. And then next thing you know, you've broken down your race into a very um, manageable, task oriented, piece by piece sections so that you can have a successful day if you execute 80, 85% of the sections you defined, so... All right, you guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. What a great uh, podcast, I think, (laughs) because uh, it allowed me to really describe Kona the way I see it, Um, the strategy. I hope all of you found some value in that and uh, how you can maybe apply that to your own racing and your own learning and your own growth. Next week, we'll go back into a variety of emails and questions and training updates and um, and many of you have reached out regarding the newsletter. I will be sending out another uh, newsletter next week. I have a variety of things, announcing the coast ride, announcing some spring training camps, um, announcing some other things. So that'll all be in there. We'll have some more nutrition input from Emily. We'll have um, a variety of updates in there. I try to keep that newsletter really short. So... um if you want to sign up for the newsletter, it's at aimcoaching.com/newsletter and you just plug in your name and your email there and that way you'll get it. And uh, the second newsletter will be coming out next week, so later in October. I'm still catching up on a lot of work this week from having been in Kona and making sure everybody is covered. So have a great week, everybody. Please let me know of questions if you want to hear more about the Kona aspect or have something specific to that, please let me know um, and uh, i'll I'll be glad to dive into it so or at least address it on the podcast or maybe just send you a separate email and uh, answer your thoughts or con- concerns so Have a great week. Enjoy your training. I also got an email from somebody who wanted more info with regards to the preseason slash offseason. I'm going to go into that. Um, That'll be coming up soon. So we'll all be ready to go as we move into the preseason of 2019. November and December of 2018. And January is the preseason for 2019. Um, Some core work some stability work, some strength work, and what we're all doing. So that's all coming in the coming podcasts. So have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. You guys are awesome. And um, yeah, I'm loving it. Bye.